At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Morning. Uh, we have not had a chance to meet yet. My name is Kurt McDonald. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, and this morning, it is my honor and privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Well, let's begin this morning with a little Tom Petty. If you don't know who Tom Petty is, see me in the back after for prayer. Um, Tom Petty is the American singer, songwriter, musician, uh, frontman for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Here's what he has to say. Don't it feel like tonight might never be again, baby? We know better than to try and pretend. Honey, no one could have ever told me about this. The waiting is the hardest part. Every day you get one more card. You take it on faith. You take it on the heart. But the waiting is the hardest part. Very true words. Amen. Waiting Waiting is hard. No one in this room enjoys waiting. We all hate to wait. We would rather have it when? Now. now, because we are all terrible at waiting. No one in the room would stand up and say, I have a PhD in patience. Uh, knowing this about pretty much every human everywhere that we all hate to wait, one credit card company made its slogan, our credit card takes the waiting out of wanting. So when you want it, you can get it right now as long as you have their credit card. I mean, how many of us in the room have actually uh, gone around the traffic jam, even though that route would actually take longer than sitting in the traffic jam, just so that we didn't have to wait? Anybody? Right? We, we are all guilty of that because we all absolutely hate to wait. I mean, how many of us feel the frustration just washing over us as we sit and watch the bag boy at the grocery store moving slower than molasses. Just, I mean, he could not put that, you know, uh, eggs in the basket, in the bag, any slower. He's taking forever and you just feel the frustration washing over yourself because you hate waiting and he is taking forever. And so in an effort to actually feel like you're doing something, instead of just waiting, you get out your phone and do something like answer an email or something like that, just so that you're not just waiting you would rather have something to do because this guy is taking forever or how many of us yell at the person in the car in front of us who is driving five miles under the speed limit namely going down 92 somebody um, and so even though they can't hear you you were yelling at them because they're going five under and you're very frustrated because you absolutely hate to wait that is that is all of us we absolutely do that we hate to wait and it's really the, the culture that we live in, the speed um, at which we live, the rate at which we're doing things and going here and going there that actually makes us uh, hate waiting even more. The technology that we have at our very fingertips, the phone that we have in our pocket makes us even worse at waiting because uh, we, we can get information instantly. We don't have to wait. You can Google it. You can, you can search it. You can communicate with millions through social media instantly. You can send a text message to friends and family instantly. You can order packages to be sent to your door instantly. You can, uh, you can either order dinner to be brought to your door, or you can order a car that can take you out to dinner instantly, immediately, right now, without having to wait. Why? Because we all absolutely hate to wait. We, we need to be aware that 
our capacity for patience is not increasing, but our capacity for patience is actually decreasing because of our, because of our culture in the world in which we live. One of the challenging aspects of not having a PhD in patience, uh, many of us don't even have a GED in patience for that matter, but one of the challenges for not having a PhD in patience is that many of us parents in particular, we're actually required to teach patients, are we not? So we're terrible at patients to begin with, but now we have these little monsters in our house that we have to actually train in patients and teach them to be patients when we're actually terrible at it to begin with. I mean, is this not the battle that we're engaged in every day, teaching our children to be patient? Just wait, hold on, Call, it's, hang on, it's not your turn. Wait, be patient. This is what we're constantly telling our children when we're, in fact, ourselves awful at being patient. I often find myself teaching my daughters to wait when they think that they can do something that I'm certain that they can't. Like, wait, hang on, slow down. Uh, our oldest, she's nine. She's our, our little helper. And uh, she loves to work with daddy in the wood shop. And so when I'm in the wood shop, she loves to be there with me in the wood shop. And I was measuring this board. I'm like, man, I gotta, I gotta cut this board. And so our oldest grabs it and says, daddy, I'll cut it and heads her way to the power saw with the, I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, slow down, right? I, this, this was something that I knew that she could not do herself she needed help. She needed to wait. She needed to be patient. And there I am trying to teach her to be patient. In addition, I find myself telling them to wait or teaching them that it's not their turn, right? It's not your turn. When the other sister has been on the iPad for five hours, like it hasn't been, she hasn't had it for five hours. Just wait. Be patient. It's not, it's not your turn. Sometimes it's not their turn, but other times it's not the right timing. Yes, that's fine to do, but just wait because right now is not the right time to do that. I, I hear myself saying these things to my girls all the time. And the truth is I need the Holy Spirit to teach those same truths to me. I need to be told by God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't do that. You're not able, you're not capable of doing that. You need to wait. You need to wait on me, wait on the Lord. I, I, I hear the Lord saying that the Lord needs to teach this to me. It's not your turn it's their turn. I know you feel jealous. I know you feel frustrated, but it's not your turn. This is what the Lord needs to teach to me. The Lord needs to teach to me as I'm trying to teach them, hey, it's not the right. I know that you can do this, but right now is not the right time. I need the Holy Spirit to teach that same truth to my heart that right now is not the right time. You need to wait. You need to be patient. So if you're taking notes, one of the most sanctifying works God does in the life of the believer is teaching us to wait. One of the most sanctifying works, that, that process by which God is teaching us to kill sin and become more like Christ, that is the process of sanctification. One of the most sanctifying works that God does in our life is teaching us to wait. Just wait. Just be patient. Just slow down. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. The question is this, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Now, usually, usually that question has a totally different meaning than what I'm meaning by it. The, the question comes, what are you waiting for? As a challenge to get up and go do it. As a challenge to tackle that thing that you've been scared to do or, or the thing that you've been intimidated. Oh, I can't. Oh. And, and so the challenge is, what are you waiting for? Get up and go do it. 
but I don't mean that in the same way. When I'm asking you the question, what are you waiting for? I mean something totally different. See, the text this morning is asking us that question, what are you waiting for? But then it reminds us, listen, that God is at work in the waiting. As a matter of fact, the main point of the sermon today, here it is, one main point, waiting is not wasted. Waiting is not wasted. The, the problem with waiting is that we feel like that something needs to be done and there's nothing to be done. And so it creates this frustration because we're waiting. We're waiting on our marriage to get better, yet our spouse is unresponsive. We're waiting for our kid that is far from the Lord and abusing drugs and alcohol to turn around and come back home. We're, we're waiting for this opportunity at work to come about, but it never does. And so we're frustrated in our waiting because we believe that nothing is happening when something should be happening. That, that's what's frustrating about waiting. But, but what's happening in our waiting is that God is at work in our waiting. Our waiting is not wasted, even though we feel like it is absolutely wasted. You see, he's preparing us. God is In the waiting, God is preparing us to see him face to face. Whether we go to him or he comes to us in that in-between time, he is refining us. He's preparing us. And though there is pain in our waiting, there is frustration in our waiting, it is not wasted because God is at work. Amen. 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 So uh, what happened last week in our text is that James uh, hit us with a very, a very strong rebuke. I mean, it, it was a painful text to read, much less to, to, to preach and to go through where he is actually rebuking us for how we spend our money. And so if you think that uh, James is going to let up on us this week, you're wrong. Uh, if you think he's going to give us the week off, you, you I mean, you know, maybe go ahead and just go out and get coffee because what he has to teach us this morning is a lesson in patience and a lesson in our speech. So for all the literary nerds in the room, if you're not a little, uh, literary nerd, feel free to just block this next section out. But I want to tell you the structure of the text because it's helpful as we understand it. This, this text has an A-B-A-B structure. Um, so idea A, then he goes to idea B, then back to idea A, and then to idea B. If you just want to jot this down, you can, uh, again, just to help us understand the text. So idea A is patience. So A, patience. We'll see that in verses 7 through 8. And then idea B, which is the speech or tongue, we'll see that in verse 9. Then 11 and 10, he goes back to patience. He actually uses the word steadfastness, which, which he's using those terms interchangeably there, patience and steadfastness, uh, in verses 10 through 11. And then back again to speech or the tongue in verse 12. So A, B, A, B, patience, speech, patience, speech. That's the, that's the structure of the text. Now for the flow of thought. What is, what is James saying in verses 7 through 11? Let me give you the big idea, uh, and then we'll dive in. Here's, here's what James is communicating to us. If you're suffering or going through a trial, okay, remember at the beginning of verse 5, the people who were poor in the church were suffering because they were being oppressed by the rich. So now he's got this idea of a suffering people and oppressed people in the beginning of five, and now he's speaking directly to them. If, if you're being oppressed or suffering or going through a trial, his thought is this, I bet you're feeling impatient, right? Anybody suffering, going through a trial, and that trial is making you feel impatient. Maybe you're impatient this morning with your spouse, or maybe you're impatient this morning with your job, impatient with 
family relationships through the holidays that are awkward and difficult. You're waiting for them to improve. You're waiting for that, that relationship to heal, yet it has not. And because you're going through that trial, because you're suffering, there's a feeling of impatience. And now, impatience then lends itself to what? Grumbling or swearing. Now, not that kind of swearing. We'll get there. But when we're suffering, we want to grumble. We want to complain. If you're suffering, you're feeling frustrated, then you're likely tempted to grumble and to swear. But James's point is this, establish your hearts. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Because the, the Lord is coming. Now, question for later, why would the coming of the Lord be an antidote to us grumbling when we're impatient? Well, that's a very good question. We'll, we'll answer that later. Let's look at verse seven. Y'all ready this morning? Let's get into our text this morning. Chapter five, verse seven says this, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. He begins by giving us this exhortation to be patient, therefore, brothers. Now, this is not the first time he's talked about patience during suffering. This is the end of the letter, right? So remember, there are no chapter divisions as James writes this. He's not writing chapter five, verse seven, right? There's no chapter divisions. Those are put in later to actually help us find particular texts. But he's coming to the close of his letter. He's already talked about this idea of steadfastness and patience during suffering. And he's circling back around to it at the end of the letter to pick this idea back up and present it to us yet again. Just go back to James chapter one and look at verses two through four. He says, it's counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He's, he's bringing us back in chapter five. So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's already told us to be patient, to be filled with joy during trials and suffering. And so in chapter five, he's bringing this idea back up to us. Here's what he's saying. Steadfastness or patience is the road to ultimate joy, true peace, meaning, purpose, being filled with hope, unbroken and undistorted fellowship with God. That road that I just mentioned is paved with suffering, learning to be patient through that suffering so that we may be complete. Now, if you're tempted to believe that patience is defined as the ability to wait, you would be wrong because that's not what James is saying at all. He's actually challenging us to be joy-filled. So you, if you just have the ability to wait, you're missing out on what James is calling us to as he's telling us to be patient. As a matter of fact, I think this is a working definition that we can go off of what James is getting at. Here it is. Patience is the quietness of heart in the presence of a difficult situation when there is nothing that you can do but pray. So patience is a quietness of heart. What do I mean quietness of heart? I mean the voice in your soul that says, God's got this. It's gonna be okay because I know the Lord is sovereign and I know he loves me and I know that he cares. 
And it's the ability to do that when there's nothing else to do. You can't, you can't make another phone call. You can't have another conversation. You can't throw money at this problem anymore. There's nothing that you can do other than pray. And so please do not hear me diminishing the power of prayer in this statement at all. The Lord intentionally places us in situations or allows us to be in situations where we have not reached our desired outcome. And there is nothing that we can do but pray. And that is precisely where he wants us to be in that place where there's nothing that we can do but pray. Well, the opposite of that or the other side of that would be this, if you're taking notes, a lack of patience expresses the weakness of our hearts to believe that God is faithful even when we are waiting. Do you find that in your heart this morning, a lack of patience, a frustration with God because he has yet to do the thing that you want him to do? Do you find that frustration, that impatience welling up in your heart that God has not fixed that relationship yet? He's not healed that broken uh, marriage that you're in. He's not changed that thing about your child, which you've been desperately praying that he would do, and he's not yet done it, and you feel frustrated. Well, maybe it's because you're not trusting that God is faithful when you're waiting. Now, what James says is this in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers until the coming of the Lord. Now, here's what we know about the, the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord will be sudden, amen? There, there will be no crescendo into the second coming, meaning uh, there, there will be no voice from heaven in three days' time, right? It, you know, in two days' time, it's happening tomorrow. There, there, there will be no crescendo into the second coming. The, the Lord will appear. The trumpet will sound and the Lord will descend. That, that's how it's going to happen. The clouds roll back as a scroll, you guys know. It, it, it's going to be sudden. In addition, the coming of the Lord will be unmistakable to all. It, it, there will be no mistake that the Lord has returned. There, 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 there's no silly myths going around about, uh, you know, well, maybe the Lord's already come back. Or we're not sure. We're looking at the evidence. No, no, no. When the Lord returns, you're going to know, right? It, so, so we will be transformed into something totally different. The earth as we know it will be burned. There'll be a new heaven, new earth. We will be with him forever in resurrection bodies. And that, my friends, will be unmistakable to everyone because all will bow the knee, his friends and his foes. All will bow the knee. And so the time will be absolutely unmistakable. And so here's the question. Why is the coming of the Lord motivation for patience? Do you see what he's saying there in verse seven? Be patient, therefore, brothers. Why? Until the coming of the Lord. So the coming of the Lord is supposed to be some type of motivation for us to be patient. And so how is the coming of the Lord motivations for our patience? Well, here it is. If you're taking notes, the glories of Jesus' return will overshadow the suffering we experience now, especially as we understand that those sufferings are preparing us for his return. The sufferings that you're experiencing right now, your difficult marriage, your, your wayward children, your addictions, your depression, all of that is preparing you. It's doing something in your life to get you ready to hear the trumpet sound. So whether he comes or you go to him, the suffering you're experiencing, what you're going through right now, the trials in your family, the trials in your life, all of that is, is working on you and working in you to get you ready to be presented to him blameless and spotless like a beautiful bride on that day. That's what's happening in your waiting. That's what's happening 
in your suffering because your waiting is not wasted. He's growing you. He's molding you. He's changing you. He's maturing you, and he's shaping you. Now, he gives us an example of this type of waiting in a farmer. Look at what he says at the end of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. This this example of a farmer. We, we get the example, but there's something really important that we need to see here. This type of patience that James is calling us to is certainly not a let go and let God. Sit back on your laurels and just rest because God's got this. Don't, you don't need to do anything at all and just let God work it out. Well, does a farmer do that? Well, certainly not. This is why I love the analogy of the farmer. James is brilliant. The Holy Spirit working through James, giving us this analogy of the farmer because the farmer has done all kinds of things. The farmer hasn't been resting, sitting around doing nothing. The farmer has been thinking about the soil. He's, he's been tilling it. He's been adding compost to the soil and preparing the soil and getting the soil ready. And then, he, then he's made rows, right? He's, he's ordered rows and he's planted those seeds in those rows and, and he's, he's done everything that he can do in preparation for the Lord to do something. So he's done everything that he knows to do. And then once he's done everything that he knows to do, then he leaves it in the hands of the Lord. The problem is some of us are waiting, but we have not done the work of the farmer. Some of us are waiting for the Lord to take over this situation, to fix it, to heal it, to mend it, to do something. When we have not done the work of the farmer, we have not tilled the soil. We have not planted in rows. We have not prepared for the harvest. We're just waiting when we haven't done the work of the, the farmer. If you're taking notes too often, we are wondering why God won't do what we want him to do when we have not done what he has asked us to do. Help me today. There are clear things in God's word that he has outlined for us to do. I get that question all the time. Pastor, I'm I'm wondering, what's God's will for my life? I've been asking, I've been praying. I want to know what God, God's will for your life is that you read his Bible. Read his word, pray, be a member of a local church, serve your local church, and he'll tell you, right? Walk in holiness, get get sin out of your life. That's God's will. There you go. I just told you God's will for your life. You're welcome. It's, it's not that complicated. So many of us are waiting for God to intervene, to come into our situation, to fix it for us when we have not done the work of the farmer. We have not done what we know to do. We've not done what he's asked us to do. But this farmer here, this farmer is waiting. And it, and it says that he's waiting for these rains, things that he can't control, the early rain and the late rain, but this farmer, this exa- the example of the farmer, this farmer has great patience. Why does the farmer have great patience? Because, because the farmer knows that radical change is taking place even though he can't see it. He has put that seed in the ground and he stands back and he waits patiently knowing that what's happening in the soil is this. Shoots are coming out of that seed. He can't see it. Those shoots are turning into roots and it's drawing nutrients from the soil, but he can't see it. It's forming a stalk and that stalk is actually pushing dirt out of the way and stretching up towards the sun and he can't see it, but he knows that radical change is taking place even though he can't see it. And so he waits 
patiently. You see, church family, we're not waiting around for something amazing to happen. Extraordinary things are already happening in your waiting. This is the work of the Lord. God is using our waiting to transform us into what he wants us to be. Pastor Paul David Tripp has this to say, waiting is about what you will become while you wait. Waiting is about what you'll become. It's about what he's forming you into. It's about how he's shaping you. It's about how he's sanding off those rough edges. It's about how he's taking uh, off that corner that needs to be rounded out. It's, it's what you will become while you were waiting. Verse eight, he says this, you also be patient, establish your hearts. Wow. What does it mean to establish your heart? Establish them in what? Well, clearly from the text, establish them in patience. He's telling you to do something to your heart that will build it up in patience establish your heart. So look at verse eight again. He says, you also be patient, establish your heart. So how do we, how do we establish our hearts in patience? I, I, I just went through the whole intro of the sermon telling all of us that we're all terrible at patience. So how do we establish our hearts in patience? Well, he's given us this idea, this thought about hearts early on in the chapter. Do you remember Chapter 5, verse 5. Do you remember that from his scathing rebuke? Look at 5. He said, uh, chapter 5, verse 5. He says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self indulgence. You have fattened your hearts. Down, skip down to verse 8. He tells you to then establish your hearts. So don't fatten your hearts, rather, establish them in patience. So in the fattening of their hearts, look again at verse 5. He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury, in self-indulgence, and you've fattened your heart. Meaning this, instead of looking to the Lord for their comfort, for their peace, for their joy, for their fulfillment, what did they look to? Well, they looked to luxurious things. They looked to comfort. They looked to money, a bigger house. I don't, come on, everybody's got a three-two, you know, a three-bedroom, two-bath. I'd, I'd, I'd like like a five-three, like five bedrooms, three, you know, just a little bit more, a little bit bigger, a little bit newer car, you know, one with seat warmers. I know we live in Georgia, but let's get seat warmers, y'all. Come on, help me today. So, so these people fattened their hearts and lived in luxury. And he's saying, don't, don't do that. Don't get your fulfillment from there. Rather, establish your hearts in patience. So bottom line, to establish your heart means that you live like Jesus will return. So the people that were fattening their hearts were living like today's all we got. So, so let's get the nicest car, the biggest house, the, the finest clothes. Let's eat the best food, drink the best wine. And he's saying, no, no, establish, don't fatten your hearts, establish your hearts, meaning live today like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Live today like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. That's how you establish your hearts and that's how it grows in you, patience. Well, let me tell you a story. Um, when I was growing up, my, my parents uh, had go-to pieces of advice. 
You know, you know what I mean? They're like things that no matter what the situation was, my parents had these go-to pieces of advice that they would give you that applied to multiple situations. Anybody else have parents like that? It's like, didn't, didn't matter what the situation was, didn't matter what was going on. They'd, they'd give you those, those, one, those one-liners. Well, let me share with you uh, one that my mother gave to me, uh, who is, who's with us today. Um, <clears throat> here's, here's her piece of advice. So no matter what it was that I would be complaining about, right? She, she, I would go to her with this problem, with this issue, whether it be with school or uh, a relationship or, you know, whatever was going on. I would, you know, mom, I can't, this thing, but you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's what she would say. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. She told me that a thousand times. So frustrating in the moment. Insanely, they, well, it hasn't passed yet, mom. Like it's, I'm still in the middle of it. But she would say, this too, this too shall pass. And here was her point. This is, this is momentary, but that will be eternal. That was her point. As I complain about this thing, that thing, this relationship, this issue at school, this too shall pass. If you're taking notes, the painful refining that comes in our times of waiting is momentary, but the relief will be eternal. So, relief will come when the refining is done. Relief will come when the refining is done. Do you find yourself praying for that relief? Oh God, I need you. Please, God, come fix this. Come shape this. Come change their heart. Come open up this door. Crack a window, God. Do something. You know, please, God, give me some relief. And the Lord's saying, when the refining's done, when the refining's done, there'll be relief. And church family, the reason that he's pointing us to this day of the Lord is because that's the final relief. That's the ultimate relief. That's the complete relief and rest from waiting because it will be the culmination of everything we desire. The coming of the Lord. You see, we need God's grace in refining us more than we need God's grace in relieving us. (laughs) So James has already told us that a mark of true religion is that we bind our tongue. Do you remember that from chapter one, verses uh, 26 and 27? He said a mark of true religion is that we're able to bridle our tongue. Then he gave us a lengthy treatment about speech uh, in chapters three, verses one through 12. So now he's gonna return uh, to this topic of speech. And if you're, again, remember our pattern, A, B, A, B, we're now on the, the first B, moving on to this topic of speech. So he says in verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. See, as we wait, as we're waiting on God to do something, as we're waiting on God to change our situation, there is a sense of frustration and impatience and we're hurting. And it's just like the old saying, hurt people, hurt people. And so in that impatient, waiting, frustrated time, we're tempted to do exactly what verse nine tells us not to do, namely complain. Grumble. That's why he says, do not grumble against one another. You see, those who are suffering can still sin. (laughs) It's it's easy to look at somebody who's suffering in a particular situation and think, 
that they can't sin. That, that their suffering um, actually gets sin out of the way and, and they're, just, they're just suffering. But the reality is, is that even though we are suffering, we can still sin. And the, namely, the way that we're most prone to sin is grumbling and complaining. That, see, suffering does that to us. Suffering wears us down. And because we're worn down by our suffering, by our impatience, we actually don't guard our tongue. And so we, we end up saying things like this to ourselves. Why did, I, why did I say that to my spouse? Or why did I say that in that way? Right? I, I could have used a totally different tone. And the reason is, most likely, we're frustrated at God and take it out on those around us, namely our spouse, namely other church members. Because we're frustrated at something out there, hello, we bring it in here. And the first person that says, hey, good morning, how are you doing? What do you care? Right? <laughs> We're frustrated because of something that's going on out there. We're frustrated at God, and so therefore it causes us to grumble, namely, at one another. So when you're forced to wait, really our default is grumbling, right? In, in that impatient waiting, we shift into that, that grumbling mode. And the, the truth is we love to minimize our grumbling, saying things like, well, it's, it's only natural. Anybody in my particular situation, anybody who's having to suffer like me, anybody has to wait like me, it's totally fine. I mean, everybody understands why I'm complaining. But the reality is, is that grumbling is deeply theological. Complaining is deeply theological. If you're taking notes, if God is sovereign, then every time you complain, your grumble is actually against God. There's no neutral complaining. There's no neutral grumbling. If God is sovereign over all, then our complaining is actually complaints against God, whether we direct them to him or not. And so he's calling us to do not grumble against one another. Then he says this charge to us. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. I mean, what he's getting at is that the Lord could return at any time. And so we're called to be in a constant state of readiness for the Lord to return, according to Luke 12, 35 through 46. And so James' point here is this. If God were here on the other side of that door, would you say what you just said to that other church member? If God were there on the other side of your bedroom door, would you speak to your spouse the way that you just did? That, that's what he's getting at. He's saying, I know that you're frustrated because you're waiting. I know that you're frustrated because you're suffering, but that does not give you the right to speak to your spouse, to speak to other church members the way that you just did. Behold, the Lord is standing on the other side of the door, meaning he heard what you just said. So watch yourself. This is a warning, a warning from James. Now, now back to patience. He's shifting gears again, moving from verse nine to verse 10, back to patience, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Did the prophets suffer? Anybody, anybody have a copy of the Old Testament? Jeremiah was hunted by men from his hometown. Ezekiel's wife died. Daniel was deported away from his land and his people. Hosea's wife was repeatedly unfaithful to him. On and on I could go. They were absolutely imperfect to be sure, but their suffering did not drive them away from the Lord. Their waiting and their suffering pulled them to the Lord. 
This is what he's getting at here. This is, this is his point. As he's pointing us to the prophets, he wants us to see that they were not driven away from the Lord in their waiting and in their suffering. Rather, they took their suffering as fuel to push them to the Lord, to drive them into the Lord. How many people do we know and how often are we even tempted that as we suffer, as pain and trial comes into our life, we get angry with God and blame him and yell at him and yell at those around us, driving us away from other people and driving us away from the Lord when God's intent for our suffering and for our waiting is to drive us into the fellowship of the believers of Jesus Christ and to drive us into him. This is what he's trying to do with our suffering. I want you to know this church family for taking notes. God is not oblivious to the pain in your waiting. That it has that tendency to make you feel alone, does it not? Like nobody else understands what you're going through. Nobody knows what I'm experiencing now. But the truth is, God is not oblivious to the pain in your waiting. The Lord knows what you have lost while you have been waiting. I know many of you. I know some of your stories. I know what you've lost. I know what you've lost while you've been waiting. And so does the Lord. The Lord knows. You're not waiting by yourself. The Lord waits with you. He waits with you. He desires that you would draw near to him and not run from him in anger. The truth is, if we follow Jesus, there will be pain. When we follow Jesus, we follow a suffering Savior. And, and he tells us, Jesus tells us to, to take up our cross. And so a lot of the time in our waiting is actually the way we carry our cross. Waiting is carrying, carrying your cross. So you're, you're working hard to fix your broken marriage, but your spouse is unresponsive. And so you wait and you carry your cross. And in that process, you're being refined. Your child is far from the Lord, abusing drugs and alcohol, and you've done all that you know to do. And so you wait and you carry your cross. And in that process, you're being refined you see all the other mothers happy with their newborn babies, yet you do not have one. And so you wait, and you carry your cross, and in that process, you're being refined. Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So not only has he pointed us to the prophets of old, he then points us to Job as an example of waiting and as an example of, of patience. And I mean, the question is, is, is Job an excellent example of waiting? I mean, have you read Job? There's a, a lot of questioning of the Lord and his motives there from Job. You see, Job waited in a messy way. Right? He waited in a, in a way, a human way. He wasn't perfect in that. But it's clear from the book of Job that Job never 
turned his back on the Lord. He did not forsake God. And so what happened was God restored to Job like many, many times over what he had. And so he loses absolutely everything. But what he gains back through his waiting is, is monumentally more than what he had before. The point being this, if you're taking notes, the Lord's purposes are worth waiting for. And so in, in our waiting, we're, we're, Lord, come on, why don't you do this thing for me? Why don't you fix this? Again, why don't you open a door or crack a window or fix this relationship or, or like get this thing going at my job? And God's saying, wait, wait, wait. If you just wait, what I have for you is way better than what you're asking for. So just calm down, right? It, again, isn't this the thing that we're constantly trying to teach our children? If you'll just wait for what mom and dad have for you, it's, right, it's so much better than what you're asking for right now, yet we have failed to learn it ourselves. This is why he's pointing to Job. You see, when we wait, it does not feel like the Lord is being compassionate and merciful. Did you see that at the end of 11? He says, see how the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Isn't that the very thing that we're tempted to believe that the Lord is not while we're waiting? We're tempted to believe while we're waiting, while we're in pain, that the Lord is not compassionate, that he is not merciful. That's the very thing that he is. You see, that's what we're praying for. We're praying, Lord, give us mercy. But we have been chosen to wait. God is equipping you to wait and the pain that we're experiencing is actually mercy and compassion from the Lord. You're saying, Lord, I don't wanna feel this pain while I wait. I, I, don't, I don't wanna go through this while I'm waiting. And he's saying, I, I want you to give me mercy, Lord. And he's saying, no, no, no. The pain that you're experiencing in your waiting is actually mercy. It is compassion. You're not waiting to get grace. You're getting grace in your waiting. That's what the Lord, that's what the Lord is doing. And so if you're here <clears throat> this morning and you're feeling like I, I cannot, I cannot wait anymore. I'm tired. Oh, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with the waiting, Lord. You call upon the Lord right now and ask him to give you the grace that you need to wait even more. Amen. Call on him. Now, verse 12 seems like a totally different topic. It's again, sh shifting those gears again. You're, we're, we're constantly asking James, James, where are you taking us, James? Because it, it seems like he's going in a, a totally different direction. But again, remember our ABAB structure. Uh, he has just, again, reminded us uh, to be steadfast in verse 11, taking us back to the idea of patience and steadfastness and waiting. And so now he's going to go back to the B idea, which is the tongue. But above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, this swearing here is not uh, as we would consider in our own modern languages as swear words. That's not what he's getting after. He, he's talking about uh, taking an oath or making a promise, giving your word. That, that's the type of swearing that he's, that he's getting at. He, he's saying, but above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Now, is it, is it a sin to make a promise or to make an oath? Well, of course not. There's all kinds of uh, believers in the Bible. The apostle Paul took oaths. The Old Testament prophets took oaths and made promises and things like that. But it's by what they're swearing on. So, so here, by heaven or by earth. So um, in, in, our, like in our modern language, we would, we would say, I, I, I swear on my mother's grave. Sorry, mama. Um, we, we say, I swear, I swear, or, or um, you know, uh, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, that, that type of thing. That's, that's what they were doing. And, and he's saying, don't do that. 
rather let your yes be yes and let your no be no. So what, what is James saying? Well, on the plain face of it, he's saying proven character is the foundation of your trustworthiness, not what you swear by. So your, so your character shows I'm a man of my word. I said I would be there. I was there, right? I, I said that I was going to do this thing and I did that thing. My yes is yes and my no is no. So why is he bringing this up at this point? Well, he is returning yet again to this idea of, listen, not being double-minded. Are y'all still with me this morning? Yeah. Okay, if you're still with me, let, let's, let's go back then to James 1, James 1 verse 8. James 1 verse 8 says, uh, he is a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. Now, now James 4, 8, are y'all still with me? He says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's closing out the letter, bringing us back to this idea of being double-minded. Because if your yes is not yes, if your yes is like sometimes a maybe and sometimes a no, then you're a double-minded man. If your no is sometimes yes and sometimes, then, then you're, then you're double-minded. He does not want us to be double-minded. So don't say, here, here's the point, if you, if you tuned out, here it is. Don't say that you believe that the coming of the Lord is at hand and don't live that way. Don't be double-minded. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. He's, he's getting us to this idea of, of the, the coming of the Lord is at hand and you guys are double-minded. Sometimes your yes is no and sometimes your no is yes. You need to live not double-minded, a single-minded focus on the return of Christ. This, this is what you need to do. And in your waiting, be patient because when the coming of the Lord is here, all of the relief that you've been asking for in your waiting will finally be here. This is what this is what James is getting at. And so church family, that's the text. We've walked through it. What are we to do uh, with such a text? Well, the truth is some of us need to repent this morning. We need to repent because we are not waiting on the Lord like he's going to return. We're waiting in a way that is being double-minded. And so there needs to be repentance this morning, namely on my part as I survey my own life. I want you to know, church family, I'm not, I'm not unaware of the pain that comes from waiting. I know that many of you struggle this morning with a particular pain as you wait. See, my wife and I, we lost a child, and so we're waiting to see that lost child because we know that they're in heaven I'm waiting for the Lord to continue to pull me out of darkness and depression that has come upon me over the last two years of ministry. It's been brutal, to say the least. Um, I've been meeting with uh, a biblical counselor who has given me a plan for my spiritual and emotional health, and, and we're, working, we're working the plan. I've done the work of the farmer, and so... At this point, I'm waiting. I'm waiting, and it's, and it's painful, and the Lord is refining me. I'm, I'm personally waiting for the Lord to heal me from wounds from my past, some of those self-inflicted, um, others, those who were closest to me. I'm waiting for some of our church members who are far from the Lord. I'm, I've done everything that I know to do, and so I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for them to return, and I know the pain 
that comes in that waiting. There are many areas of growth in my life. There are areas of immaturity. There are areas of inconsistency that I need the Lord to step into my life and make a change in me. And I'm waiting. I'm waiting and it's, it's painful. And so I want to return to the question that I ask you. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for this morning? Know this, God, God is at work in your waiting. See, God is preparing us to see him face to face, whether we go to him or he comes to us in that time in between, he will be refining us. He'll be preparing us. Though there is pain in your waiting, though there is frustration in your waiting, your waiting is not wasted because of the goodness and because of the sovereignty of the Lord. Let us look to our great example, Jesus, who patiently waited and at just the right time, Jesus stepped into human history. He patiently waited and endured the failings of his disciples and the failings of his followers. Jesus was so patient with them. Was he not? As he, as he called them back to repentance, as he rebuked them, as he loved them, he could have just gave up on his disciples and gave up on his followers, but he was patient with them. And he, he waited, he patiently endured his trial. Don't you understand? Jesus didn't have to go through all those trials standing in front of Pontius Pilate and all that. He didn't have to go through that, but he patiently waited and Jesus endured and he was steadfast straight to the end. And he patiently endured the cross. Jesus did not have to suffer one single moment on the cross because he is God, yet he patiently and steadfastly endured the punishment of the cross so that he could pour out his blessing and his blood upon us so that we may be cleansed. He is the patient one. He is the steadfast one. And so let us look to him. He waits with you. He is the patient one and you are not waiting alone. He draws near to you and waits with you. He stands by your side as you wait so that you are not waiting alone. He waits with you. Hebrews 4, 15 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. We can take the word waiting and put right in there. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our waiting, but one who in every aspect was tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us with confidence, church family, hello, let us with confidence this morning draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray for those who are waiting this morning. I pray for those who feel lonely in their waiting, who feel lost in their waiting. They are desperate, Lord, for you to intervene. Lord, let them know that you are intervening. You have already intervened in your greatest intervention, which was the cross. And that, Lord, in their waiting, they are not alone and that you are at work. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to reassure us of that. Lord, let the second coming make all of our waiting small and let our eyes turn to you so that our hearts may be filled with joy even in our waiting. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.